The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Imagine, if you can, that I am a middle school student and that I have come to your office and you are the pastor of my church. And I say, Pastor, my parents have been talking about this thing called the Trinity and I don't know what it is. Could you please explain it to me? Pastor, I've heard my parents talk about this thing called the Trinity and I don't know what that is. Could you please explain it to me? This is a question I was asked when I was going through what we call the ordination process in the United Methodist Church. All pastors have to go through two examinations, one right after they graduate from seminary to find that they are prepared for ministry, and then after serving a church for three years, they are evaluated about whether they have been effective in ministry. And so after serving a church for three years, I sat down at a table surrounded by about 12 people, and the woman to my left said, Pretend I'm a middle school student, and you're my pastor, and I would like you to explain to me the Trinity. What would you say? What would you say? This isn't what I said. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three-in-one God. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. It has vexed and confused people for centuries trying to figure out how to explain the three-in-one nature of God to those who believe. Here are the top three ways that people often try to explain the Trinity. They say the Trinity is like an egg. It's like an egg. An egg has three parts, a shell, a yolk, and a white. If you get rid of just one of those things, it ceases to be an egg. You have to have all three parts for it to be an egg. The problem with that analogy is those are three separate parts that aren't at all like the other. And frankly, one of them tastes a lot better than the other. <laughs> the egg. God the Trinity is like an egg. That's not a very good analogy. Another one that I've heard is that God is like water. God is like water. Like drinking water. God is like water because it's always H2O. It's always water. But if the conditions around water start to change, it changes. If it gets very cold, water becomes ice. If it gets very hot, water becomes a gas. But no matter what, it is still two hydrogens, one oxygen. Now that's pretty good. That's a fair analogy for the Trinity. The problem is that outside forces cannot change the Trinity from one thing into another. They are uniquely Father, Son, and Spirit as one no matter what. The third comes to us from St. Patrick, the one we worship in March, some of us by wearing green, some of us by drinking us ourselves into a stupor. St. Patrick, he was first known for his image of the Trinity. He was once asked what the Trinity was like, and he reached down on the ground in Ireland, and he pulled up a shamrock. And he said the Trinity is like shamrock. It is one plant with three different pebbles on it. You cannot have a shamrock without all three, and they are unique and wonderful they are all bound together as one. And again, that's pretty good, but it's still not the Trinity, because they're three separate things. And the Trinity is not three separate things, it is one thing. And so all of these images of the Trinity start to fall apart. 
So I didn't say any of that to the Board of Ordained Ministry when I was interviewed and said, I said, the Trinity is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. They didn't like that answer. The Trinity is a mystery. Today is, as I said before, Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday it always falls on the Sunday immediately following Pentecost. That's why we still have the red banners up. We have the red pyramids. I'm wearing a red stole. But today, of course, Scripture talks about flames of fire flashing forth. So we wanted to keep the red out. Because it always follows after Pentecost. It is this day in a liturgical year where pastors like me talk to people like you and try to explain the Trinity using things like eggs and water and shamrocks. But here's the thing. For as much as our God is a present and revealing God, our God is also incomprehensibly and uncontainably complex. God is a mystery. The scripture that Michael Redford says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, the voice of the Lord thunders, it breaks the cedars, it shakes the wilderness, the Lord flashes forth like flames of fire. The psalmist conveys to us an image of the divine that has far more to do with destruction and devastation than with eggs, water, or shamrocks. Here in this psalm we discover a God who causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare such that all the people in God's temple can only say one word, glory. Most of us here have come of age in a world in which the God of Scripture has been conveyed to us again and again by analogy after analogy. A world where professional Christians like me have conveyed to you and tried to bring you closer to God. When the truth of the matter is that we cannot describe God and God is the one who comes to us. Our God cannot be contained by metaphors and analogies for middle school students. Our God is overwhelming like a windstorm, as frightening as a voice that can shake the wilderness, and as bewildering as a flame of fire flashing forth. The church, the Bible, the Trinity, they're all confusing. And we can blame it all on God. God reveals God's self to us in ways we cannot imagine, in ways we cannot rationalize, and chooses to be God for us as Father, Son, and Spirit in a way that is beyond our ability to comprehend. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, then what can we say about God? If God is mysterious, if God is confusing and confounding, what can we say? Perhaps we can say that God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. And we can say that because God chose to reveal God's self to us in the person and the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, like God, is anything but simple. In Jesus, God got explicit and peculiar and physical. God came close to us, too close for comfort for many of us. Jesus is God in action. Jesus is God refusing to remain an abstract idea removed to a far-off place. Jesus is God breaking forth from the shackles of God's own divinity. But lest we fall into a daydream version of God in Jesus through the lens of things like sentimentality, God is still the God of the psalm. God is still a windstorm and a fire and a flood. I once heard it said that God is at least as nice as Jesus. But the same holds true that Jesus is at least as frightening as God. So then we're left with this other question, a question I talked about during the children's moment. If we can't really say who God is or what God is like, can we at least say who is God's for? 
Because after describing the destructive power of the Lord in the psalm, it ends with this verse, with a call for God to give strength to God's people and for them to be blessed with peace. What about those who are not part of God's people? What does peace actually look like? Does God take sides? The answer to that question is just as confusing and ambiguous as the Trinity itself. Because the Lord in Scripture blesses the sons and daughters of Abraham, but then they have a famine. They are rescued by Joseph, only to become slaves in Egypt. Moses delivers them from bondage to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua delivers them to the promised land, but they are never really at peace. There are wars after wars, and the so-called chosen people lose just as often as they win. They are taken to exile or forced to wait for loved ones to return home. And when they are reconciled, if ever, peace is the last thing on their minds. We can read these stories in the Old Testament over and over again. We can encounter those elected and rejected by God. But we don't have to look too far to know that it's true. I'm 30 years old. And more than half of my life, our country has been at war. More than half of my life, we've been at war. In my last church, I was talking with our youth group one night, and we were talking about ISIS. And one of my youth said, well, I wish we could just go to war with ISIS. I said, well, we could, but we're, we're still in two wars right now. And they said, no, we're not. I said, yes, we are. They didn't know. And I realized in that moment that all of the youth there were born after September 11th, 2001. They've never known a world in which we were not at war. So much so that they didn't even know that we were at war. We don't have to look too far to know that this world is broken. We don't have to go looking for it in the Bible. We don't even have to go looking for it in our nation being at war because it's happening here in our own lives. Mother against daughter, father against son, brother against brother, sister against sister. We seem to always be warring with one another. And so then we ask this other question, are we going to encounter the God of earthquakes, of flame, of wind? Is God on our side? When will God ever bless us with this peace that the psalm talks about? Psalm 29, the doctrine of the Trinity, they raise more questions than they provide answers. People like you and me have been struggling with these ideas and images for centuries. We've been tugged in the tension of ambiguity of God's nature in the world and in our very lives. Because we worship a God who blesses, but we live in a world where bad things happen to good people. There is no easy and satisfying answer to the question of whether or not God takes sides, just as there is no easy and simple analogy for the Trinity. We may never be able to avoid the confusing nature of faith completely. Because so much of what we do, if not all of what we do, is based on the premise of a mystery. We just happen to live in a world that's hell-bent on having an answer for everything. I've spent the last few weeks talking a lot about the Wesleys, a lot about the Wesley family. On Mother's Day, I told a story about Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, about how she broke conventions and taught her sons about the Bible, even though she was told not to. Uh, the week before that, I got up on a ladder here in the middle of the sanctuary, and I, I 
taught about uh, John Wesley's quadrilateral. So he thinks about the world through scripture and through tradition and through reason and experience. And we've been talking a lot about the Wesleys because they are the founders of what has become the United Methodist Church. There are a lot of United Methodist churches named after John Wesley or Charles Wesley. We like to sing Charles Wesley's hymns when we worship together. A lot of churches will have stained glass windows with someone from the family so you all can see them on Sunday mornings. But John Wesley wasn't as great as we often make him out to be. Because after he graduated seminary, when he was sent to serve his first church, he had no faith. He didn't believe the words he was saying on Sundays. So much so that he asked a mentor what to do. He said, how in the world can I continue to do this when I don't believe what I'm actually saying? And the mentor replied, John, preach until you find it. You keep preaching until you find it. And so he went to Georgia, what was then the colony of Georgia, and he tried to preach. There's all these stories about what happened there. But suffice it to say that by the time he got back to London, all of the doors of churches were closed to him. Nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. That's why we say we have open hearts, open minds, open doors. It's because John Wesley encountered a lot of closed doors. But it got to a point where he had no church to preach in, no real community of faith. He had no faith, he found his faith, and he started to lose it again. And it was 280 years ago on Thursday, 280 years ago on Thursday, that he was walking down Aldersgate Street in London, England. And he heard there was a society meeting happening inside of the building, so he went inside, and there were a group of Christians, and they were reading the Book of Romans. We have John Wesley's journal, so we know that that night he went home and he wrote down in his journal very famously, I was sitting there and someone was reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and all of a sudden I felt my heart strangely warmed. I believed that Christ loved me, even me, that Christ died for me, in spite of me, and this fire, I can never let it go out. It's in large part because of what happened to John Wesley on that night 280 years ago that the United Methodist Church exists today. That flame that he felt in his heart, that strangely warm feeling, it sent him all over the country, empowering lay people to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to spread scriptural heart and holiness across the land. It's why there are millions of people in the world who call themselves United Methodists today. Because a man felt his heart strangely warned. God comes to us. God reveals God's self to us at different times and in different places as Father and Son and Spirit. For some, God flashes forth like flames of fire, and for others, God's flame is found in a strangely warmed heart. But God finds us. And contrary to what we might want, God doesn't answer all of our questions. Yet when God encounters us, we discover with an assurance, like Wesley did, that God is with us. When the far-off one who has been brought near is us, when the wall that has been destroyed is the wall that we built in a vain attempt to get God off of our backs, that's when we start to know the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But faith, faith will always be a mystery. We will always find ourselves confused by the God who finds us. Because in the end, it might be too frightening to think about God's peace, whatever that is. 
It might be too overwhelming to think that God is not on our side, or maybe worse, that God is on their side. So on this Trinity Sunday, as most of us leave church scratching our heads as to what I said, we do so with the hope that God will bless us with peace. But not the kind of peace we want to know, or the kind of peace we want to see in the world, a peace that is always defined by the victor. No, this Trinity Sunday, we we pray for peace. God's peace, the kind of perfect peace that is shared between the three members of the Trinity, Father and Son and Spirit, and we may be so bold to pray that God might warm our hearts in the process. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen.